Well, today, my brothers and sisters, we celebrate a, a wonderful feast, the Feast of Corpus Christi. And every year, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded of one of the most central and important beliefs of our Catholic faith, and that is that Jesus Christ, the resurrected person of Jesus Christ, in his flesh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is truly, really present in the most holy Eucharist. And uh, probably many of you know that this feast was instituted in the 13th century, about 700 years ago or so, a little over 700 years ago, and it was instituted in response to a Eucharistic miracle that took place in Bolsena, Italy. And uh, the story goes there was a German priest who was on pilgrimage uh, on his way to Rome, and so he was working his way down south, and he stopped at Bolsena. He offered Mass there at a church there, St. Catherine's, uh, uh, I believe is, that's the church. And he had doubts in his mind. Sometimes priests doubt the faith, okay? So the, the priest himself had a doubt, you know, is this really Jesus' body and blood? And as he's offering Mass, he has this doubt, and he, he elevates the host, and the host begins to bleed all over his hands, all over the corporal that was on the altar, and then he's startled and he steps back and the blood goes down all over the steps of the altar on which he was offering Mass. And he's very, very shocked. And he, they stop Mass and he kind of takes things and he sort of puts, it, he puts the host and the corporal and he folds things up. And at that time, and it was about 1270 or so, the Pope was not in Rome. The Pope was actually residing in Orvieto, which was a town very close to Bolsena. So conveniently enough, this guy goes directly to Orvieto, gets an audience of the Pope. The Pope sends men to investigate this. They, they authenticate it, that this really is uh, a miracle. And all of the different elements, like the corporal, even the stones upon which the blood fell, uh, they're brought to Orvieto. And a huge cathedral, is, a huge, beautiful basilica is built uh, in honor of this miracle. And then the Holy Father charges St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the Church, he charges him uh, with the task of writing uh, a mass and an office for this uh, to commemorate this event. And so this is where we get the feast of Corpus Christi. Well, uh, I'm going to share with you that that took place 700 years ago. Uh, but it was not the first Eucharistic miracle that took place. And in fact, by the 13th century, so many Eucharistic miracles had taken place in the history of the church that St. Thomas the same guy who kind of designed this, this current feast day, uh, he devoted a, a section of his great theological treatise, the Theologica, uh, the Summa Theologica, to this question of what happens when there's these Eucharistic miracles and uh, how do we understand this, what are the theological implications, the philosophical implications of all of this. So he actually devotes his treatise to it because it had been happening for hundreds of years beforehand. And then after the 13th century, it never stopped happening. So God has always worked these Eucharistic miracles all the way up until today. And I'm going to share with you details about the most recent, and probably, I think, in my estimate, the most well-detailed Eucharistic miracle. Uh, and that is, it took place, actually, very interestingly enough, before the Holy Father, Pope Francis, our current Pope, uh, was Pope. He was uh, Archbishop, and then before that, he was Auxiliary Bishop of Buenos Aires in Argentina. And so there was a church in Buenos Aires, a little 
church in the middle of the city called St. Mary's, and uh, there was a host that had been dropped in the back of the church. Someone just left it there and didn't pick it up. Okay, Hopefully it was an accident. It wasn't intentional. Someone else was concerned, obviously. They took the host, picked it up off the ground, and brought it to the priest, the parish priest, uh, Father Alejandro Perez, I think, and gave the host to the priest. Now, sometimes priests will consume the host in that instance, okay? Uh, but in this case, uh, another practice that's done, he followed another practice, which is they place the host in a cup of water, a bowl of water, and then it dissolves over the course of maybe about 10 days or so. It'll dissolve, and it'll cease to be the Eucharist, and then it can be disposed of in a reverent manner. So that's what he did. He places the host in a bowl of water, and he places it in the tabernacle. He comes back eight days later to find a bleeding clump of what appears to be flesh. He's very startled. And he goes directly to the bishop, uh, Bergoglio, who would become Pope Francis. And Bergoglio says, well, okay, let's get a photographer in there, and they photograph this thing within an inch of its life. They do a really good job photographing it. All the photos are online. You can see the photographs. You can see the host kind of like little by little. It almost appears like the outline of a host, but at the same time, it's a bloody clump of flesh. And so they photographed it, you know, the month that this took place. They leave it in the bowl of water, and they leave it in the tabernacle. They leave it for three years. It does not undergo any kind of change or decomposition. At the end of those three years, in 1999, at this point, Bergoglio is the archbishop of Buenos Aires, and he says, okay, let's do a, like a scientific study of this thing. So they get a guy in there uh, by the name of uh, Castagnon, Dr. Ricardo Castagnon, who is a psychologist, but he's got a medical background too, so he's, he's pretty competent. He's not being paid, because that would be a conflict of interest if he was being paid, so he does this for free. Um, and so what Castagnon does is he takes, it to a, he takes a sample of this bloody clump of flesh, he brings it to a forensics lab in San Francisco, and they don't tell the they never tell the scientists where the, the, the sample's coming from so that they're not biased, okay? They can kind of just do a blind test. And the reports come back is that it's blood and that it's got human DNA in it, so it's likely human blood. Okay, well, so the next, uh, actually three years later, I guess Castagnon, he was a busy guy, he, didn't, he couldn't focus all his time on this, but what he did is he took the sample to another lab. He, talk, he took it to Professor John Walker of the University of Sydney in Australia. And the results of this test was that it's muscle cells and that there are intact white blood cells, intact living white blood cells in the sample. This is 2002. The sample was taken in 1999, so that's three years. And then the miracle had taken place. Um, it would have been uh, three years previous to that. So we're talking six years now and the white blood cells are still alive. If anybody's got a nursing or medical background, you know that white blood cells can only live for a few minutes outside of a person's body. So there are six years these white blood cells are still alive. And uh, he, so then after that, the year after that in 2003, uh, Castagnon takes it to another scientist, Dr. Robert Lawrence, who is an expert in tissue pathology, so like you know, damage done to human tissue. And uh, this scientist says that the tissue is from an inflamed heart, and so that the person from whom it was taken must have suffered greatly because their heart was inflamed. It's 2003. 2004, Castagnon takes it now. 
So he says, okay, let me go to the guy, whoever the top scientist is for cardiac pathologies. And so he takes it to uh, Professor Frederick Zugaba of New York at Columbia University. Again, blind test. Zugaba does not know where this comes from, so he's not biased against it. He looks at it under a microscope, and he's very experienced in this field. This is his expertise. He says, the sample which you brought me is the muscle of the heart, the myocardium muscle, and it is precisely the left ventricle. And the person from whom this uh, sample was taken suffered very greatly, some great shock. And at some point, he could not breathe. There were certain moments for, uh, during which he could not breathe, and his every aspiration must have been extremely painful. Something happened to him, maybe like a great blow at the level of the chest. That's what the scientist said. So now there were a lot of witnesses present here. There was a lawyer, there was notaries, there was a journalist, and they all, they all knew where it came from. And so they said to him, um, how long can white blood cells live outside of the body? And he says, well, the person you took this from must have been, you know, this is just like a few minutes old sample, right? And he said, nope, it's like seven or eight years old. And Zugaba says, I, I don't know how to explain that. And then they tell him it comes from a host. And he's completely, he says, I don't believe it. And after all the kind of the, Facts are laid on the table. He's totally at a loss as to explain what this is all about. It's a remarkably well-documented uh, event that is uh, most reasonably concluded to be the result of divine power and an incredible, meaningful, significant testimony to the real presence of Jesus Christ in the most holy Eucharist. More than that, Castagnon does one last thing. He takes the sample... And he takes another sample from another Eucharistic miracle, another famous one from Lanciano in Italy. It's a 1,200-year-old miracle. And in this one, there was a host and a monstrance, and it turned into a piece of flesh. And that flesh is still in existence to this day after 1,200 years. It's kind of it's decayed a little bit, but it's still there. He took a sample from that, and he took the sample from the Buenos Aires miracle. He brought it to a lab, again, blind test. And the people, the scientists said, these two samples came from the same person, and this person has AB positive blood, and there's other characteristics that would indicate the person was born and raised in the Middle East. This is all well documented. And if people don't want to believe this, it's at that point you're being irrationally skeptical. There's a difference between being careful about your facts and being irrational. And this is very well uh, substantiated stuff. So my brothers and sisters, we believe that Christ is really present in the Eucharist, not because of these miracles, but because he said it, because he said, this is my body, because he said, this is my blood. That's what our faith is based on. But God in his mercy, knowing our weakness and our stupidity and our thick heads, he allows these miracles to take place all across the history of the church to confirm our faith, to confirm what Jesus has taught us. Now, shifting gears here just a little bit, you probably maybe you know this already and you've read it in the bulletin. Unfortunately, um, my friends, I'm going to be uh, I'm called on, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm not going to be going too far, though. 
I'm going to be going to, I've been asked to take up ministerial responsibilities for Clyde and Lyons and Savannah. So um, I'm going to miss you very much. It's a surprise for me. kind of came pretty quick. And um, I love you all very much. And uh, I'm going to miss you a lot. Uh, and I have tried uh, these past two years, only been with you not too long, but I've tried to do the best that I could. You've been patient with me in my mistakes and in, in uh, the rookie mistakes that a new priest makes. And um, I thank you for your love and your appreciation that you have for me and the communion that we have in Christ and in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Jesus in our Gospel says to the apostles, he says, give them food yourselves. He's telling the apostles to feed the people. And I, I believe the best of my ability, I've tried to feed you uh, with the Word of God and especially, of course, with uh, the most Holy Eucharists uh, in whom... Uh, we, we have our communion and we always will now and in eternity.